some chance to uh, practice speaking mindfully or not. How did it go? How are you doing? Is it nice to be back in silence? Was it good to talk? Mm. So-so. Some yes, some no. Yeah, it's really a process and um, it's very individual too. At the end of certain retreats you may feel mm, quite drawn to that connection and it comes a bit more easily. Other retreats you may find or feel yourself to be um, really very quiet and very inward and then the talking is really a kind of step-by-step effort to reconnect back. Over the years of doing retreats and spiritual practice, one of the things that you will discover is that spiritual life does not proceed in some linear way where it gets better and better or more open, more open or quieter and quieter. It seems instead to proceed in cycles and waves or some kind of organic opening like a plant that's gradually blossoming. And that there are different seasons that come quite naturally as we open. Seasons of opening and closing and seasons of healing and seasons of great stillness, seasons of activity. And in many ways, the art of living an integrated spiritual life or a mature spiritual life is that of moving gracefully through the cycles that change in our experience. This is from Ramdas. He wrote, Practice is a bit like a roller coaster. Each new high is usually followed by a new low. Understanding this makes it a bit easier to ride with both phases. There is, in addition to the up and down cycles, an in and out cycle. That is, there are stages at which you feel pulled into inner work and all you seek is a quiet place to meditate and get on with it. And then there are times when you turn outward and seek to be involved in the marketplace. Both of these cycles are part of one's practice for what happens to you in the marketplace helps in your meditation to keep it authentic. And what happens in your meditation helps you to participate in the marketplace without attachment. So these are the natural cycles. What you also discover is that it's not always what you plan. In fact, probably more often, it's more often it's not your plan at all. Like this young man who came and sat with us in Barry at a three-month retreat and got really inspired and decided he was going to go to Thailand and become a monk and practice in India and started to save money and spent two or three years working and saving money and then was going to come to the three-month course again and kind of get a start in deep meditation and go from there to the monasteries of Asia. And about two weeks or ten days into the three-month retreat, he got a phone call that his dad had had a major stroke down in Florida. And so he had to leave the three-month retreat. 
and go and help take care of his father. And he actually took care of him for a couple of years until his father died. And at first, he was enormously disappointed. Going to go to three-month retreat and then go to India and Thailand, go to Benares, you know, the holy city, and, and get enlightened. And after a couple of years in Florida, he realized that he was living in Benares. It was the Benares of America, where all these people were going to prepare to die. Right? There wasn't the Ganges River, mind you. But, and that the practice in Benares of sitting by the burning ghats or dealing with the end of life was there where he had been called to serve his father. And it really wasn't different. It was just different in his idea. So it's important to understand that what you get, what comes, is your practice. There's no other practice, none. What comes is practice. So you go back home and it's the dog or the, you know, the male that waits for you or the people that are there. Or in some cases it may be your computer, right? Somebody gave me this um, set of little poems which was written, written, suppose that your computer spoke to you when it had difficulties in haiku poetry rather than in, you know, cryptic messages of error. And so here are a few sample. When your computer knows a little more about Dharma. A file that big, it might have been very useful, but now it's gone. (laughs) Or... First snow, then silence. This thousand dollar screen dies so beautifully. (laughs) A crash reduces your expensive computer to a simple stone. (laughs) One more. Three things are certain. Death, taxes, and lost data. Guess which has occurred. You want to know where your practice of letting go or whatever it happens to be, it's where you are. And in this, we learn not to make compartments of what's spiritual or sacred and what's not. Because so much in this modern world, we have retreat time or we had time that people went to church Sunday morning or temple or whatever. They don't even do that anymore, but we used to. And then we had business time, family time, and time for sex, and time for service, and it was all, it's all in little boxes, as if they were separate. To live in a mature way, a spiritually mature way, is to not create the compartments of what is sacred and what is not. It's a bit like the old black man who lived in the city and was very pious, went to the church near him, really an avid churchgoer. And then there was this urban redevelopment and the whole neighborhood was cleared and he was moved out and ended up being put in an apartment in a much fancier white neighborhood. But being kind of pious, he started going to the big fancy church down the block. And after some weeks or months of attending, he said, well, this is the church I go to, I might as well join. And went to talk to the minister about what it would take to join the church and began to get this funny feeling that maybe he wasn't so wanted as a member of this church, this fancy white church. And so uh, 
the end of the conversation, he said, you know, I think I better pray about this. The minister said, that's a good idea. You know, kind of put him off. So a few weeks later, he ran into him. They were on the street, the minister and the old black fellow. How are you doing, Reverend? Doing fine. Yeah, I've been, I've been praying about joining the church. I've been talking to God about it. Well, this kind of got the minister's attention. Oh, you talk to God, huh? Oh, yeah. Every time I pray, I figure I'm talking to God. Well, did God say anything to you? Yeah. He said, uh, he said it's no use. He said, I've been trying to get in that same church myself for 25 years. <laughs> they won't let me in either. So there are the outer ways that we separate things that aren't, this is spiritual and that's not, this is sacred and that's not. And because of it, we have the injustice and the racism and the kind of wars that we do because things aren't respected in the sacred way. But there are also the inner ways in which we make compartments from one side to another of what our spiritual life is. I've been working on a... um, number of chapters for a new book um, on what happens as people mature in spiritual life. This is the account from one spiritual teacher who had some amazing experiences in her early years in monastery, but then she had a serious bout with cancer. A large abdominal tumor was removed, and with it all that I had clung to as certainties in my life. I quit work and I stopped my spiritual teaching. I turned to anything I thought might help me change what had led to that cancer, from acupuncture to depth therapy. I became humble before the body. That was 15 years ago, and I can now say it was the biggest turning point and awakening of all. I had used my body, now I had to inhabit it, respect it, love it with all the feminine force and nurturing and understanding I had withdrawn into my so-called spiritual life. Keeping my heart in my body has become my practice, and it's become glorious. Even the first awakenings into perfection and grace have not come close to showing me the joy of living in the body, in the senses, in each moment. I love my life in a new way. This has become the place of freedom. So how to integrate or embody or live this practice, not just as an ideal, but as we leave here. And it turns out that it's moment to moment. As uh, William Blake said, if one is to do good, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the scoundrel, and the flatterer. So it's not the ideas of what's good, but actually how we step through life and how we speak and how we act. To embody spiritual practice, we also need to understand that it's difficult, that life is hard and full of paradoxes, and that this human realm, which the Tao calls the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, this realm that's halfway between heaven and earth has terrible struggles and enormous pain 
and unspeakable beauty. And perhaps that's one of the things you sensed as you sit here on retreat, that even in with, within yourself, there's a nobility and an integrity you find, a kind of grounding, sitting like the Buddha. But also, there's longing and jealousy and resentment and fear. And both of those come and go as our experience. And you can't say, I'm this or I'm that. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary just to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? So we begin to see that we carry all the pieces of life and that we face it every day. Each time we go in the supermarket with this plentitude and this abundance more than Napoleon or the emperor of China or anyone ever had is what's in Safeway. You know, and then we also know about street children and world hunger on the very same day. It's a very difficult thing to really become conscious as a human being. In this way, you can't pick and choose one part, but it's to open to all of it. Now, as you notice here, as we've practiced, there are also different sides. In one way, this practice is a letting go, a certain selflessness, which is what how we spoke about so much last night. Letting go of the small sense of self, the stories that we've been bound by, to be free. Letting go of what's called the body of fear, so that we can live in the present moment in a new way. So when you get ready to depart from the retreat, if you wonder, did I get anything? What am I taking with me? This actually isn't the place to get much. It's really the place to leave things. It's more like the dump, right? <laughs> you come here to let go of stuff. Wounds, pain, the kinds of identities we carry, the, the sense of self that is destructive to you, um, to open so that you can be fresh. Ajahn Sumedho, this wonderful American abbot in England of a number of monasteries, wrote, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking and getting and trying to be. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go rather than trying to develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras and study the Abhidharma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and the Madhyamaka and Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in Hinayana and Mahayana and Vajrayana and write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. Let go. I did nothing but this in my practice for years. Every time I tried to figure it out and get something, I'd say, let go, let go, until that clinging would fade away. 
So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of this next age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love as this special being throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go. You see, ours is called the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, so we have only these simple poverty-stricken practices. <laughs> and one side, very genuinely, that you experience in the retreat and as you leave is this opening, this release, this letting go. The other side is that as we let go, that some of what we let go of is unworthiness and judgment and self-hatred. And in a way, we find what could be called a true self, that no self is also true self. We let go of the false or the small sense of self and find in some moments in your sitting and walking and being a very deep trust an integrity, a wholeness, an openness that's not some specific identity, but one's true being or one's true nature. And it comes like learning to swim. You know when you're a child and you're struggling with how, you, how to first learn to swim and the water doesn't hold you up and it's really rather frightening and you're paddling around if someone lets go of you. And then at some point you lie back, maybe somebody holds you a little bit and then lets go, and you realize in a moment that the water actually will support you if you don't flail about too much. And you can breathe and you can float there. And it's a magical moment. And in some way, it's that cellular level of trust with all the storms and joys and sorrows and everything that's come, that something beautiful is there in you to rest in, that's there in the universe that we learn, that ground of being that is both emptiness and wholeness. A poem from Alison Luderman. Don't tell anyone, but I love Jesus. He's just like that Buddhist god, Avalokiteshvara, the bodhisattva of infinite compassion, except his name is easier to pronounce. <laughs> when you're in trouble, it's hard to remember to yell for Avalokiteshvara. But, oh, Jesus arises naturally. <laughs> Every time some crazy driver hot dogs past you on the freeway, hot dogs past me on the freeway, I know I should say a prayer when I'm about to die, but will I be able to remember Hebrew at a time like that? I don't want to die saying, oh, shit. <laughs> I'd like to leave my body consciously like a Tibetan Lama sitting in full lotus with my head turned toward where I'll reincarnate next. But let's be realistic. I probably couldn't meditate enough to become enlightened in however many years I have left. Jesus seems easier. All you have to do is love everyone. Well, seems is the key word here. Sometimes the more you try to love people, the more you can't. Maybe it would be better to not even try and then watch the love force its way out of you like grass through cement. 
And so there's a kind of trust of being like that, which comes out of us like grass through cement, that we begin to touch and feel in a cellular way, in a feeling way, in an imaginative way in the mind. And the image or the archetype from Buddhism of a being who carries that wholeness into the world is a bodhisattva. Bodhisattva, bodhi means awakened, and sattva is being, is a being who is committed to awakening and compassion, no matter what the circumstances. Beings are numberless. I vow to awaken them all. Or as Suzuki Roshi said, even if the sun should arise in the west, that is the whole world be turned backwards and upside down, the bodhisattva has only one way, which is whatever circumstance arise, to use that as a place for compassion, again, for freedom and liberation. Now, the path of the bodhisattva doesn't mean we have to rush around the world and solve all the problems. Because the human realm is the human realm, 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. What it means is that we listen in our hearts to our own particular gifts and capacities and cycles, not in an idealistic way, but in a way that in this presence allows our deepest response to life, allows our heart to respond. From Mahababa, the sage or saint in India, The scope of service is not limited to great gestures, heroic acts, and huge donations to great causes. They also serve who express their love in little things, a word that gives courage to a broken heart, a smile that brings hope in the midst of gloom, a glance that wipes out bitterness from the heart is also service, although there may be no thought of service in it. When taken by themselves, all these things seem to be small. But life is made up of many such small things. If these small things were ignored, life would be unbeautiful and unbearable. So the spirit of the Bodhisattva is to find that wholeness, in ourselves, to remember it, to touch it, and then to bring that as a sense of compassion, as we've done here with the loving-kindness meditation and so forth, to business meetings and traffic jams and child-rearing and political action and gardening and meditation and real estate and all these different things to where we are. And that spirit of compassion is really, again, a simple one. I have this poem that was written by the great um, kind of American calligraphy master, Lloyd Reynolds, so it's in his handwriting. And he writes, A bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. And you sense in that, just so simply, that in that moment, it's a respect for that bug. 
And in the next moment, it's a respect for the piece of paper. It's a respect for what actually is here, the things of life. Those are the little things, but it's also the big ones. There is like the metta or compassion practice we've done, the Tibetan version of Tonglen, of taking and receiving. One breathes in the sorrows of the world into the heart as if they could be transformed by feeling their pain through the fire of that experience and then breathes out compassion. Takes in the suffering and breathes out compassion. And I was teaching with a Tibetan Lama at one point. We were doing this practice, which is a very difficult practice and needs the right instructions and things. I'm not just saying one should do that. And there were people who were struggling with it. And then he stopped for a moment and he said, let me ask you something. Someone asked about all the suffering in the world. He said, if you could alleviate the sorrows of so many other beings by breathing them in and breathing out compassion, who among you would not do it? And everyone was sitting there said, if I could do it, if it really worked, I would do it, no matter how hard it was. There is a joyful spirit in the bodhisattva. It's not the spirit of going around kind of being some person who's straightening everybody out and fixing the sufferings of the world, but rather it's the um, generosity of the heart. There's also in this bodhisattva who is committed to the direction of awakening no matter what happens, a great simplicity. People ask at the end of the retreats, how do I go? What do I do? How should I practice? How many hours of meditation? How often a retreat each year? You know, how do I keep whatever going? There is no formula. And no one can tell you. And no one has ever lived your life before. This is an uncharted stream. And there is no authority We're entering a new millennium. No one's ever lived in this particular human year in this way before. And whether it's in a monastery or in parenting or in nursing or business or driving, here we are. We find ourselves in this circumstance. And it will be changing all the time. So you can't bring a formula to it. Suzuki Roshi's description of all of Buddhism, remember, not always so, always changing. So Zen Master Dogen said, do not put a false head above your own. That is, don't add a whole lot of ideas about how things are supposed to be. And then watch your steps closely. This is the fulfillment of Zen. Not to have the ideas and be where we are. And our care with each moment, our response to it, then begins to affect all beings because we are intimately connected with all others. So Gandhi said, I believe in the unity of all that lives. I believe that if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. Or that scientific statistic, when you take a full breath in, 
how likely do you think it is that you have in that breath one molecule from Julius Caesar's dying breath? 99 times out of 100, you will have one molecule from Julius Caesar's dying breath. It's all just being recycled. There's not very many breaths and we're just sharing them with one another. How we live and what we do affects all around us. I had a very powerful and um, poignant experience of this many years ago traveling in India with my wife, Liana. We were at one point on top of Mount Abu at a ashram with Vimla Thakkar, who's a very great teacher. She was both a disciple of Gandhi and Krishnamurti. And in the course of being there, we were meditating various pilgrimages. My wife began to have visions of death and dying. And I kind of tried to reassure her, no, no, that's just what happens in meditation. Don't worry about it. But it came very real and very particular. And in a very clear vision, she saw someone that looked like her brother dying. It was frightening. But I still said, no, no, don't worry. It's part of the meditation. I was wrong, unfortunately. And 10 days later, we received a telegram that said, your brother Paul has died. And then, reading the particulars of it carefully, on the top was the date. And it turned out, taken 10 days to get there, that he had died the day that she had those visions and in the way that she had seen. Everybody's heard stories about things like this before. You've all heard them. Do you know why? Because it's true. We really are connected. How else could one be on top of a mountain in India and know what happens to someone else that you love so deeply? It also turned out that later on she had a vision of her brother, Paul, and she had had two very important spirit guides who came at difficult times in her life. And now when the vision came, there were three, and her brother was the third of them. It's really quite mysterious, you know, such a mystery to be alive. We went back to Florida, actually, and at one point, visiting my wife's parents, her mom and dad. One point, a number of years later, Liana told her mother this story about Paul and just at, wondered what her mother would think because her mother was a Methodist churchgoer. One point, a number of years later, Liana told her mother this story about Paul and just at, wondered what her mother would think because her mother was a Methodist churchgoer and a pretty, you know, spent most of her time in a very sort of straight middle class um, society and um, didn't have a lot of spiritual reading or notions or anything. And her mother said, oh yes, after Paul died, he came here every evening for three months and sat in that chair over there and he would just sit in the evening and look at me and dad, me and his father as if there was something he needed to understand. And we appreciated that he was here. And then gradually it felt like he learned what he needed to, and he faded away. 
The idea in spiritual life is not coming to know more and more, becoming expert knowledge about all of this, but it's really the quality of presence, the heart that we bring in each moment to our life. Because it is such a big mystery to be born, to die, to live this human life. Zen Master Ryokan, the most beloved poet and Zen writer and teacher throughout Japan in many centuries. Um, and he was beloved because he loved. He loved children, he loved the spring, he loved everything, even his loneliness. He would write poems about how lonely he was, the lonely Zen master in his heart. He didn't exclude anything. Anyway, he wrote, he said, spring morning, my begging is finished. I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddhist shrine to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. (laughs) So refreshing. Who knows about this universe? Who really understands where it came from or where it's going? A meditator and a teacher whom I admire as an explorer of the mind and a spiritual path. Um, before writing a book about aspects of spiritual life, decided, he's sort of a scholar as well, to read through the entire Encyclopedia of World Religions, which he did, many volumes, systematically, from um, Ahura Mazda you know, to Zoroastrianism, and all the things in between, Vajrayana Buddhism and the ancient Sumerian and the Mayan rites and the Basque religion and the you know, Hindus and the Shiites and the Sunni Muslims and all these things. And each main religion had millions of followers, or does, over hundreds or sometimes thousands of years. This great body of humanity that followed each one. <laughs> I asked him, at the end, what he learned from it. And he said, well, there were so many different stories. Each had a story about good and evil. Each had some story about the creation of the world. They were different, but they each had a story. And after reading one after another, you had the sense that there were all the stories that human beings told to make some order of this great mystery in which we're born. They were like screens or pictures that were drawn on top of this mystery to give a little sense that we understood something. But behind it, the mystery was shining through. It shines through in the (coughs) spirit and eyes of children when they don't watch too much television anyway. It's true, you know, when they're a little bit uncorrupted. Um, And I like to read from this book, Children's Letters to God, just sort of second grade Sunday school handwriting, because it has that spirit of mystery and innocence. Dear God, who draws the lines around countries? Love, Nan. Or dear God, did you mean for giraffe to look that way, or was it an accident? (laughs) Norma. Dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you got now? <laughs> Love, Jane. You know, it's a good question. What about that? 
Dear God, I'll bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. <laughs> Dear God, if you do all these things, you're, you're pretty busy. Now here's my question. When is the best time I can talk to you? I know you're always listening, but when will you be listening hard in Troy, New York? <laughs> Sincerely yours, Alan. Oh. Dear Mr. God, how do you feel about people who don't believe in you? Somebody else wants to know. <laughs> mm -hmm. This has always been my favorite. Dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, but try to be fair. <laughs> so, The spirit of the bodhisattva is not one of trying to figure things out or get some spiritual system that you're now, you know, in charge of or disseminating or, you know, trying to fit your life around. It is really the spirit of openness, of willingness to not know and to take each step with compassion and with that trust, with respect. And respect is such a wonderful thing. It's another word for mindfulness. To be aware is to offer our respect to our breath and body, to our feelings, to the people around us, the people we work with. And they all love respect. Every single one. Our gardens, our children. It's like the parents who took their seven-year-old and some other friends out to a restaurant one day. Everybody ordered. Finally, it was time for the kid to order. The, and um, the waitress said, what will you have? And, she, and the little boy said, I'd like a hot dog and french fries, please. And his mother cut him off and said, he'll have meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and carrots, and some milk to drink. And as the waitress was walking away, she turned back and looked at him and said, do you want ketchup or much mustard on your hot dog? <laughs> and he began to smile and beam and said, you know what? She thinks I'm real. All things thrive on respect. So the path of the bodhisattva is this respectful heart. Our customers, our students, you know, our employees, our boss, our lovers. Hmm. Part of what retreat offers is, is a reclaiming of this respect, because often we don't even have it for ourselves. We were injured in many ways. You know the story of James McNeil Whistler, the great American painter, who actually went first to West Point. He was enrolled as a cadet. <clears throat> <clears throat> He was asked to draw a, a, a bridge, a military bridge. He drew a picturesque little stone bridge with two kids fishing from it. And the lieutenant in charge said, Cadet Whistler, this is a military exercise. Get those children off the bridge. So he redrew it, and the kids were fishing from the riverbank now instead of on the bridge. <laughs> Cadet Whistler, get them completely out of the picture. 
So he turned in his third picture, and it had the little stone bridge and no children, but on the riverbank were two little tombstones. And then he said he quit West Point not long after that, and it took him a long time to get back the spirit of painting that was drummed out of him over those years. There's a certain way in which the practice of eating meditation or chopping carrots or feeling one's breath or letting go of all the stories and the, you know, the unworthiness and the judgments and the things that come, in those simple moment-to-moment ways is releasing that pain of the past and having respect for this moment for who we are just now. We release it with a bow. We say, yes, that's the sorrow, that's the story that happened. And we need to do that. There's a reclaiming then in that of our capacity to be who we are now. And as we do that, we become more and more eccentric. We do. And I mean, if you haven't looked at the meditation teachers, you have up here, you watched us. I mean, we won't talk about Ruth, right? (laughs) But we're all pretty eccentric. And if you got to know us better, it would seem all the more so, wouldn't it, Carol? She's laughing, Hmm? except for her, right, except for Carol. Mm. The idea is not to become someone else, but really to discover our own uniqueness, because there was never anyone before like you, and no one ever before who will live your life. And even in the Buddhist tradition, there are a thousand different images of bodhisattvas. They're the kind of spiritual warrior bodhisattvas, and they're the spiritual midwife bodhisattvas. There was a Natapindika who was this enormously wealthy merchant and businessman who built the monasteries for the Buddha. And there was Ubakin, Ruth's teacher, who was a cabinet minister in Burma with, actually he had three different cabinet ministries which he ran at once, the finance ministry and the I don't know, the Ministry of Transportation and one other. And he made all the people in the ministry sit in meditation in the morning before, and the IRS for Burma too, before they did their day's work. And then he would go in the evening and run his little meditation center. You know, so he's this, they're these wealthy businessmen, one kind of bodhisattva. There are monks and yogis, another one. There are grandmother bodhisattvas, like Deepama, this teacher from Calcutta, who was a grandmother, um, and whose style, when you went to see her, was to cook for you and you know find out how you how your health was and so forth. She wanted you meditate, but she did it in such a grandmotherly way as a bodhisattva. There's Vimala Kirti, who is the bodhisattva who used to make himself sick so that he could teach the doctors and nurses while he was lying in the bed in the, you know, in the the place of the hospital of that time. This is an old kind of ancient Buddhist text. Or he would go into the market and become a merchant so he could teach the Dharma as a merchant. Or he would go into the bars and sit there, not to drink, but to tell the stories of the Dharma to the patrons at the bar. That's a much harder bodhisattva role to try. 
But there are no fixed ways that you as a bodhisattva should be. The grandmothers are a great one. Twenty years ago, the mothers went to the plaza in front of the presidential palace in Argentina to confront the bureaucracy of horror, Los Madres de la Plaza de Mayo. These mothers were fed up with feudal visits to military chaplains who wore boots under their robes, or to the dictatorship's complaints office, where when it received inquiries about the people who it was systematically kidnapping, robbing, torturing, and killing, said, we know nothing of it. So when the women congregated at the plaza, the police snapped at them to keep moving, and the 14 mothers walked the plaza in slow circles. They kept coming back to protest, braving the nightsticks, police dogs, the betrayal and military spies who infiltrated and killed three of their leaders. They say the mothers of the plaza were fearless as the eldest, now 85, as she walks with slow and enormous dignity. But we were scared to death. We learned to walk with fear, to live with fear, for we had an obligation to find our children. We had to do this. And the mothers still march every after, Thursday afternoon now, demanding justice for other causes. And the ritual moves bystanders to tears and applause. We never found our children, she said as she went on. But in that plaza we went to school. We told our stories 50 times. We wept together. It was our educational academy. The plaza saved us from the madhouse. At 325, the plaza would be as empty as a desert. And five minutes later, the mothers would appear like plants growing out of the subway station, the side streets, and people would come up and ask, who are you? Teachers, pensioners, what are you protesting? And it spread by word of mouth. And when Neruda, the great poet, heard about us in Paris, he said, the mothers are out, the military have already lost. So there's no particular way there is your way, your care, your integrity, your gifts, your beauty. And it may be that it's to sit in a cave. I believe that yogis who spend their lives in silence practicing the heart of compassion affect this world in tremendous ways. Or it may be that it's to sit out you know, in front of the gates of the plants where they still design the nuclear weapons that we're not quite allowed to build, but they hope to build more of. In Zen, there are only two things, it said. You sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. That is, one quiets oneself to touch this place of trust and freedom and compassion in the heart, and then one gets up and sweeps the garden of the world as it presents itself to us. And there are so many ways to begin. Mother Teresa, I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look at the individual. I can only love one person at a time, the one I'm with. 
I can feed only one person at a time, just one, one. So you begin, I begin. I picked up one person. Maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I wouldn't have picked up 42,000. The whole work is only a drop in the ocean, but if I didn't put the drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. Same thing for you, same thing in your family, in your community where you go. Just begin, one, one, one. I think I might have read this at the beginning of the retreat, but it's a nice way to come back again, moment by moment. It can't be done by imitation. What matters is the spirit that you bring, and you bring our own unique gift. I feel a great respect for the work and the care and the sincerity that each of you in your own way has brought to this 10 days of practice. And I know it because you stayed and you braved in your own way joys and fears and love and sorrow and cold weather and all the storms inside, which are at times much bigger. And there is a dignity to sit and face the forces of fear and greed and judgment and delusion in the mind, in the heart and the body, to face the pains and grief that we carry. Someone needs to do it, to face them openly and honestly so that their heart is wide enough and strong enough and free enough to enter the world and bring the gift that it needs most, which is peace. I respect the freedom that's come to you in many moments in this retreat. You know you felt that in yourself. And as we leave then, in some way we connect it with others. Part of what will help you more than anything, in addition to this moment-to-moment attention and compassion, in the long run will probably be spiritual friendship. The Buddha said that the whole of the holy life is connection with that which is beautiful, with that which is good, with noble friendships and noble values in oneself sitting groups, other people you can practice with, other retreats you come to. Um, And there's a whole long list in the newsletters. We'll talk about it tomorrow morning. Um, It's just so helpful to have others remind us when we forget. It's contagious, is what Mahababa said. We catch it from one another. When we forget, someone else remembers, and you go, oh, yes. That's right. Compassion is possible. Forgiveness is possible. Resting in truth no matter what is possible. A few years ago at the Seattle Special Olympics, nine contestants, all physically or mentally disabled, assembled at the starting line for the 100-yard dash. At the gun, they all started out not exactly in a dash, 
but with relish to run the race, finish and win all except one boy who stumbled on the asphalt, tumbled over a couple of times and began to cry. The other eight heard the boy cry and slowed down, paused, they looked back, they all turned and went back, every one of them. And one girl with Down syndrome bent down and kissed him and said, maybe this will make it better. And then they all nine linked arms and walked together to the finish line. And everyone in the stadium stood and the cheering went on for 10 minutes. We can do that for one another in our falls and our brokenness to give a respect to each being. It's not so easy, but it's possible. And that's what makes it so marvelous. I end the passage from the Tao Te Ching, if I can find it here, among all these little books. No. I'll find it here then. I have just three things to teach. Simplicity, patience, compassion. These three are your greatest treasures. Simple in action and thoughts, you return to the source of being. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. Compassionate toward yourself, you reconcile with all beings in the world. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.